My name is Daniel. For those of you who don't know me, I serve mainly in the youth ministry and, and other various ministries. I mainly come from SMAC too. And yeah, it's a joy to be here to preach God's word to everyone this morning. As Tim mentioned, it's a very long passage. I uh, won't be able to cover every single little, little detail that is in the passage. Uh, but hopefully in your GGs, if you are in a GG, if you're not in a GG, join one. <laughs> that you already considered some of the things in the passage. Okay, so before we do that, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, for gathering us here, uh, that you've allowed us to be here to sing to you, uh, to listen to your word. Lord, help us as we uh, hear the words in Second Samuel being preached. Help me to preach as well, and by your spirit that you enable us to understand and to apply it into our lives today. So we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the crucial dilemmas that appears in the Bible, and in all of our lives for that matter, is justice and mercy. And we see this tension being played out in all aspects of our lives. For instance, when your kid does something wrong, uh, do you continue to sayang them or do you discipline them? Uh, when someone has wronged you, right? the Bible tells us to forgive our enemies. How do I do that? Uh, isn't there justice for the evil that has been done to me? On the other side, is it all about love? Is it all about mercy? Isn't what the world, especially what's happening around the world today, isn't what the world needs to be a better place? It's just more love. Uh, we hear things like, love wins. If Jesus Christ is a loving saviour, how can he possibly uh, punish people for their sin? How do we view the many atrocities that are going around in the world today? Is there justice? Isn't what humanity needs more is just more love. Now, these are some questions that we all need to be ready to give an answer regarding this tension between justice and mercy. And we have been seeing this tension being played out in our story in 2 Samuel so far and played out in Father King David and his son Absalom. On one hand, David loves his son very, very much. And as God has showed David mercy, he now wants to show love and mercy to his son, Absalom. But on the other hand, Absalom has committed treason against the kingdom and against the throne. And as king, David needs to administer justice towards his own son. So we see the tension there. So what should David do? How would David respond? So last week uh, in 2 Samuel 17, we see Absalom uh, taking counsel uh, one wise counsel, one foolish counsel uh, from Hushai and from Ahitopel. Uh, and uh, just a very brief recap, David received this news from his spies that he had in the camp and he crosses the Jordan, uh, runs away in a sense and goes to a place called Mahanaim. And shortly after, Absalom's army led by Amasa also crossed the river and now they're somewhere across the east side of the Jordan. The battle is about to begin. And David very quickly has to decide how am I going to respond to this battle. So here we are. We're going to look at our passage today in 2 Samuel 18. So in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 18, we see David as the king and leader of this army. He gathered his forces together by the thousands, by the hundreds. Uh, this might not be literal num uh, numbers. It could just be groups together of, hun of hundreds or battalions together. right? And in verse 2, he sets three people over his army, Joab, Abishai, and Itai. 
Uh, we see Itai in 2 Samuel 15 uh, how he wanted to help David and they, David, David insisted him to go back but then Itai insisted to stay so that's probably why he got, he got a leadership position in the army and Joab Abishai has been in David's uh, army all this while. And interestingly, in David, David himself at the end of verse 2, he says, I myself will also go out with you. Uh, why? Uh, perhaps David initially, you know, his downfall started because he didn't go into war. Uh, remember in 2 Samuel 11, he was you know, enjoying himself in that sense. Or maybe perhaps he wants to go into battle to ensure the safety of his son. But we'll see that later. But in verse 3, we see that David's generals advise him, David, don't go out. You know, you are so much more valuable than all of us. Their job, the enemy's job is to kill you. And if we lose you, we lose the war completely. Uh, this advice was very different from Hushai's clever advice to Absalom. Uh, when Hushai tells Absalom in 2 Samuel 17, 11, Hey, Absalom, you, you yourself go into the thick of battle. So very different kinds of advice. And we will see that led to Absalom's demise later. So David listened. He commanded his army from the base. In verse 4, he watches his army march out the gates of Mahanaim. And the battle is about to begin. Yet before the war starts, David has one final command for his three generals. In verse 5, it says, David says, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. Now just imagine if you were one of the person in the army or if you're one of the general, how would you have felt if listening to that command from your king? You would have mixed feelings, right? You'd probably be like, wait, we're going to war and if I see the enemy, I cannot kill the enemy? It's very counterintuitive. That's not war in that sense. So although it was King David giving out the command, it was actually a father's heart that was behind those words. A king ought to exercise justice, but the father wanted to show mercy to his son. So we see that tension once again. It's very, very real for David. He doesn't know exactly what should be done. Well, the war has started. Uh, verse 6, it tells us it's fought in the forest of Ephraim. Uh, probably why it's in the forest strategically, uh, Absalom's army was bigger uh, and David's army was smaller. And hence, in the forest, it would be more advantageous for David's army. Uh, and we'll see they did end up winning. And verse 7, they lost, or rather Absalom's men lost in the battle and David's army won in the victory. And verse 8, it tells us how the forest devoured more people than the sword. It refers probably to how the natural terrain, as we will see later in Absalom's death, maybe the branches, maybe the pitfalls, or the pit holes rather, and they fall into it, whatever the case may be, uh, that God, in a sense, was helping David's army to achieve victory. But very quickly, not the whole, the author could easily have described the war like Game of Thrones or something, I don't know. But he didn't. We jumped straight back into the main point of the story, so no point speculating about the war. <laughs> So one example of how perhaps the forest devoured more, pe more people than the sword is in verse 9, in Absalom's own death, where he was riding on his mule and he was caught suspended between heaven and earth and a branch of a great oak. Absalom was in no man's land. He was helpless. Well, verse 10, as he was hanging there, verse 10, a certain man saw Absalom, went back and told Joab about it. And verse 11, Joab was furious. Very interesting character, this Joab guy. He says, what? You saw him and you did not kill him. What are you doing? I have given you money and I have given you a belt. 
someone jokingly says a WWE belt that you will receive. If you have killed him, I will, have done, I will give you all these things. But the man in verse 10 very cleverly and very wisely remembered the words of David. How could he disobey his king's orders? And he also very cleverly thought, this Joab guy, he probably won't defend me if I did say about uh, see the truth about what exactly happened. So we continue to see on a side note, just this character of Joab being developed. And I think he's just a very pragmatic human being. By all means necessary, kill the enemy for the kingdom, for political gain, for the good of this nation, whatever it takes, kill the enemy. And he did that. I don't want to waste my time with you. Takes three javelins. One, two, three. Killing Absalom. And also we got other ten men to involve in the action as well. So Absalom is dead. And for Joab and his army and David's army, victory is won. This is good news for the kingdom, right? But as we will find out soon, this was not good news for David himself. Well, in verse 16, the trumpet is sounded. Joab says, come back, don't pursue anymore. And now they bury Absalom in the jungle. Now, before we go into David's scene and how David reacts to this whole situation and the messenger thing, I just want to pause here in verse 17 and verse 18. And I reckon the narrator or the author of 2 Samuel wants all of us here to see something. I think he wants all of us to see the futility of Absalom's life and what happens to people who decide to choose to go their own way rather than submit to God's way. So in verse 17, he was buried. And very interestingly, the, the, the author noted he was buried and piled up on top of his grave heaps of stones. And the Israelites hearing 2 Samuel 18, they will probably have remembered that these heaps of stones that are being piled out is a sign of what happens to people who disobey God. Because in Joshua chapter 7 and Joshua chapter 8, it happened to Ahan when he disobeyed, hey, don't take the treasure, he go take the treasure, and he was killed, and then he was buried. And same thing with the king of Ai and his wickedness. They were enemies of God and they were buried on, uh, on, on top of their grave has heaps of stones. And I think when they see these heaps of stones, the purpose of it is to show anyone looking at it that this is what will happen to you if you disobey God. So that's verse 17. And very interestingly, verse 18, the author includes a little end credit scene, so to speak, of Absalom's life. And how Absalom himself set up a pillar and a, or a monument and that purpose of that monument was to remember his own name. And the author noted that this monument is called Absalom's Monument and it still existed to the first audience of 2 Samuel. So when they look at this monument, they are reminded of the past and their history and the history of Absalom. So I think the author wants us to remind, to, to reflect upon this. You see, the same person who built a monument to remember his own name, doing things his own way rather than submitting to God, is the same person who was buried and deemed an enemy of God. That was Absalom's legacy. So how about for us today? What legacy are we leaving down for our next generation? Is it a legacy of self? Is it a legacy of I do things my way and not God's way? Or is it legacy of obedience to God? 
Friends, you can spend a lifetime doing things your own way and not God's way. And perhaps, perhaps, the people around you will remember you by the monuments that you've built. But in the eyes of God, like Absalom, we are just piling down heaps of stones upon our own grave. So may I encourage everyone seated here today um, in our various walks of life that we leave a legacy of obedience to Christ. A legacy of a mother who is ever serving her husband and her family. A legacy of a husband who spiritually leads and loves the family rather than spend all his time at work. The legacy of a man who is generous with his finance for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. The legacy of an uncle or auntie who could maybe can't move around as much now, but diligently prays for the gospel work of Christ to continue to be done in churches around the world. And lastly, above our own obedience, a legacy of a person that, trust us, that trusted rather in the gospel of Jesus Christ for dear life. And this person was remembered for trusting in Jesus and worshipping him all the days of his or her life. Uh, recently, on Tuesday, I attended my friend's um, grandfather's wake service. And the legacy he left behind, I was very encouraged by. He was in church, he was serving, he trusted in Jesus. And it was a very encouraging, although obviously it was a sad thing to go through, but it was, he left behind. I still remember this old uncle in church that left a legacy for me to follow. So may we uh, leave a legacy that glorifies not ourselves, but God. And may we also, through the story of Absalom, heed a warning to not be like him. Now let's look back at the passage. Um, very briefly before we see how David reacts. Um, there are two messengers that we're about to see that brings the news to David. Ahimas, uh, which is a spy previously, uh, has been a spy for David, and also a Cushite. So in verse 19, Ahimas wants to deliver the news to David regarding the war. Joab, very smartly, of course, advises against it because he knew the outcome that would happen to Ahimas. Because the king's son is dead, David would be devastated hearing the news. So instead, Joab sends the Cushite in verse 21, hey, you go and report the news to David. But for whatever reason, Ahimas was very insistent on wanting to bring the news to David. He has, bringing news, he has been bringing news and reports to David this whole time. So Ahimas was very insistent. He says, come what may, let me go and tell the news. Joab gently says, my son, better not do it. But then Ahimas again, insistent, come what may, I will run. So run, Ahimas, run, and off he goes. He even outrun the Kushite along the plain and told the news to David. I can't tell how fast he ran at the end. But apparently his running style was so apparent that the watchman recognized him. This is a good man. He's bringing good news. David was ready to hear good news. So Ahimas says to David, all is well, or shalom in the Hebrew, and tells David the news of the victory of the battle. He says, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who has raised their hand against the Lord, the king. But what was David interested in? He wasn't really interested in the outcome of the battle. Very quickly, in verse 29, his fatherly sight showed. He says, Is it well? Is it shalom with the young man, Absalom? So when you see that phrase, young man, in verse 29, David is revealing his fatherly love, his showing 
his father loved to Absalom. But Ahimas, he himself, I think he wasn't sure. He knew that Absalom is dead because Joab mentioned it to him, but he did not know exactly how he dies. So David you know, brushed him aside, put him aside and asked. He saw the second messenger running to him and he got a second round of news for the Kushite, from the Kushite. In verse 31, he said to David, Good news for my lord, my, uh, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. So, so far, almost pretty similar news to Ahimas. And David asked again, Is it Shalom with the young man Absalom in verse 32? And the Kushite replies, Although not a very detailed reply, a reply that was enough for David to find out the news that his son is dead. He says, May the enemies of my Lord, the King, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. David was devastated. He was in a lot of grief and a lot of pain. He retreated. He wept. He cried out, Oh, my son, Absalom, verse 33. My son, my son, he kept repeating, My son, my son, Absalom. Would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. I think now we take a moment to just pause here to feel and to empathize for David, the father. We can see very clearly here that David loved his son. Now, whatever you think of his love, sometimes maybe a blind love at times, but his love for Absalom, his son, is unquestionable. And how David responded, this grief and this pain is an appropriate response to the death of someone. You see, in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, God himself does not desire the death of the wicked, but that they should turn from his way and live. We can see David's response and God's heart, uh, God, David's response reflecting a portion of God's heart for those who are perishing. And I'm thankful that um, Alexis was sharing just now, there is a reality, an eternal reality when we die. Because it will be either one of experiencing eternal joy and love with God, or it will be one of experiencing eternal wrath and justice of God. So friends, death indeed is a painful thing to experience. It's very painful to grieve the death of our loved ones. I mean, Jesus himself, he wept when he saw the death of his friend Lazarus and he saw the sad emotions that was going around at the time in John 11. Um, Jesus wept. So Jesus understands the pain of griefing. He understands because he himself experienced it. So perhaps you do have someone that you love who has passed away recently. I just want to pray and say this, that the shalom of God be with you as you grieve, that you may be comforted by God's goodness in this time, knowing that Jesus himself understands your pain and went through the very same thing you went through. And that we as a church, brothers and sisters, may we grieve alongside our brothers and sisters who are suffering. May we suffer alongside them as the body of Christ to lend a helping hand, to offer an ear to listen, to cry alongside them. May we do that together as we grieve together and suffer together. And lastly, 
and a very necessary and needed reminder that Christ has defeated death. On the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, defeating death once and for all. So for those of us who are in Christ, there is eternal hope. If, if I die later, let's say, there is eternal hope for those who are in Christ, that we will be reunited with all of God's people one day together, worshipping God. So that's David's morning side. On the other side of that, there's this tension, right? The whole point of this sermon. On the other side of empathy and feel for David, we must first remember that this all began because David did not exercise justice for Tamar, Absalom's sister, who was raped by his another son, Amnon. And this spiraled Absalom into where he is today. David's heart for his kids trumped over his necessary responsibility to carry out justice upon them. This justice and mercy tension could not be bought by either King David or David the father. And we see in David's cry and grief, right? He said, would I had died instead of you? You see, as much as David wanted to die in the place of Absalom, we know that would do absolutely nothing. Yes, he's grieving and that is good. But dying for Absalom would not do anything. Absalom would not come back to life, firstly. But most importantly, Absalom would still have to pay for his own sins and treason. Absalom ultimately will still have to die. So friends, we need a greater king than David. We need a greater love and mercy of a father than David. We need a greater substitute than David. And we need a great, greater good news than a victory of a war. And the good news is that we do have that greater gospel, that greater good news of victory. We do have that greater king. We do have that greater love. That God has demonstrated this greater love that does not compromise on justice towards evil and towards sin. That the Lord Jesus took our place and was our substitute. That instead of you and I, Jesus took upon the justice of God that we deserve. That Jesus was able to die for us because he was the perfect king. He was the perfect person. And just as our New Testament reading just now, God the Father in Romans 3.26, he did that. He did this whole Jesus dying on the cross thing to demonstrate at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that you are justified. That means your sins are forgiven. Past, present, future, we are justified. But as David himself failed to hold mercy and justice together, the triune God that we worship is both just and justifier. He's shown perfect love and perfect mercy, or rather perfect mercy and perfect justice when Jesus died on the cross for us. So may this gospel for those of you who are Christian, be an anchor for your soul through the different seasons of your life. And for some of us who may not be Christian, may this gospel be an invitation for you to come, to see what Jesus has done and to trust in him for your salvation. And just like Ahimas, that he had the eagerness to tell this good news to David, that wherever you are, whether in work, whether in school, whether in, um, at home, in your family, run with the good news of the gospel. 
and bring it to all the people around you. So David was weeping. We come to the last section of our passage today. You see, David's miserableness, as the passage describes, is, was so bad that the people around him could not help but see David not being happy and being mourning and being weeping. They say, although the war is won, we're supposed to celebrate, right? We're supposed to be dancing, we're supposed to be cheering, the victory has won. But because the king is not happy, it's as if the victory did not happen. Right? Verse 3 describes the response of the people that they had to quietly, like thieves, steal into the city. Right? Like their heads down, they are mourning, they are in, they're quiet, they're going to the city as if the victory did not happen. So David was in a lot of pain. But Joab, I think Joab is a very interesting character. And despite his very questionable attitude and questionable motives at times, I think this time he actually gives good advice to David for the good of the kingdom. So in verse 5, Joab scolds David essentially. Do you know what message you are sending when you are weeping and crying over your people? Right, Your people have went to war for you. They have saved the lives of things, that have everything that is precious to you. Yet instead of showing love and gratitude to your people, you are mourning for the enemy. You are mourning for your son. And in verse 6, it says, You love those who hate you, i.e. Absalom. And you hate those who love you, i.e. your Israelite people. Now that's a bit harsh. It's a bit of a hyperbole. But it's true. That you, David, would have been happy even if all your people had died. As long as your precious boy Absalom is still alive. This was a wake-up call for David. And yes, David listened to it. He heeded Joab's warning that this, if you don't listen, you'll be worse off than what you had all this tawal from your youth. And he went out to the people and he resumed his role as a king. And for the rest of 2 Samuel, especially next chapter, we'll see how David's kingship continues to play out uh, in the rest of the book. Now, Before we end today, before I conclude rather, just on a side note, to think about this topic of rebuking others, because that's what Joab did. Maybe some of us think, wow, straight away, very savage this Joab. No, just no mercy, straight away, go and confront him. Hey, you, do that. Without regarding you know, how David feels and how David is doing. Or maybe some of us might be on the other side thinking, no, Joab did the right thing. He needed to do that. I mean, David was running away from his responsibility as a king. So we see another tension here, even when we rebuke others. And I think there's a lot of wisdom required of how we think about rebuking others and how even in a church we are called to rebuke our brothers and sisters when they are in sin. Um, there are a lot of things to consider. Um, you know, The timing of when to approach the person. Maybe not like Joab, you straight away go and confront. Maybe you take a bit of time. I don't know. It's not a very straightforward thing to think about. It could be, you have to think about the individual that you're speaking to. How tough nails is this person? Or how emotionally strong is this person, perhaps? Or maybe the relationship you have with this person. Uh, another one, the nature of the error they have committed. Um, perhaps some things are more urgent. Maybe some things just takes a little bit more time to slowly rebuke them and confront them in time. And that will inform the urgency of your need to rebuke them. If it's something very urgent, something that will cause damage to himself or to other people around him, you might need to go straight away. 
These are some things to consider, but the reality is that truth is always tough to swallow, regardless of all these things you can think of, the, you plan it perfectly, but the truth, when someone hears about their own sin, about their own error, is actually very hard to swallow regardless. But regardless, let us still consider other, these factors of how to approach a person lovingly and how to speak the truth in love at the end. And ultimately, that we trust the Holy Spirit to work in those situations to bring about good for the person that you're talking to. And the last thing uh, that we talk about rebuking when someone is in error. I think most of us will be scared. I think in our context, most of us will be scared to do what Joab did. I think rebuking people, I think, is not easy. Um, I mean, we're Asians. We don't confront people with the truth. It, like, it's, I don't do that. Um, it's not easy. It's not my first nature to do so. But I think similar to Joab, it, rather than how he did it, maybe perhaps in the most loving way we can, we still need to take the first step. It might be awkward. It might be ruin the relationship. But sometimes for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of love for this person, for the sake of growth for this person, Perhaps we need to prayerfully consider and take the first step to rebuke uh, our friends or rebuke our brothers and sisters in Christ or our family members. So in conclusion, um, there is real tension between justice and mercy. And as David experienced it in his own life, you and I will experience this tension in our lives today. So what shall we do? May I offer two encouragements that we can prayerfully consider even as we end uh, this message today. First of these encouragements as we wrestle with this tension is that may the Spirit remind us that we live in a broken world. On this side of heaven, in this life, there is no fullness of justice, nor is there fullness of love and mercy. Right? There isn't. We live in a broken world. So as we approach these situations where the tension seems real and it's very hard to settle what is in front of us, I don't think we should expect ourselves to handle every single situation perfectly. The reality is that by prayer, by supplication, asking God for wisdom, we do our best. And we make the decision, we make the right call of whether to rebuild, whether to show love, the balance of how to do it. We make the decision that best honors God and His Word that glorifies His name. Right? I think that's the best that we can do because we live in a broken world. We can't always 100% A++ make the right decisions. So we do our best by God's grace and the leading of His Spirit. So that's the first one. And the last one, second, is that may the Spirit enable us to speak the truth in love when those situations arise. And what I mean by this is that when justice and mercy seem irreconcilable, let those opportunities and situations you are dealing with be an opportunity where the gospel can be proclaimed to the person you are dealing with and to yourself as well. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is perfect justice and perfect mercy. So in those times where you are dealing with your children, remember the gospel. Those times where you need to forgive someone who has wronged you, Remember the gospel. Even in the case where you're rebuking someone, you're reminded of the gospel. And as you speak the truth in love, you speak the gospel to them. That you're reminded, I am able to show mercy because Christ has shown mercy to me. 
right? I'm able to forgive because my Heavenly Father has forgiven me. I'm able to love because Christ first loved me. And when in those times where you have to make a tough decision to exercise justice or to show discipline to those around you, remember that you're able to make those decisions because you're the Father, the God that you worship does not take sin lightly and that He has in perfect justice dealt with your sin on the cross and will ultimately deal with all evil and all injustice in this world when Christ comes back. So may we you know, wrestle with this tension uh, in whatever context and whatever situations you are currently in, wherever you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that you've shown us in Christ, that instead of showing your justice and wrath to us, the Lord Jesus, you took our place, and instead we are shown love and mercy in return. So Lord, help us in our various walks of life, um, that as we deal with situations that arise, that you grant us wisdom. Uh, may we realize that this is a tension. Sometimes it's very hard to balance or to, 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 to work out you know, these things. But Lord, we ask that your spirit enable us to do so uh, wherever we are, uh, whatever situation that we're dealing with. So we thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.